Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer here in Tel Aviv together with my co-host Amir Tibon. As we record, thousands of Israelis have spent time in their bomb shelters after hundreds of missiles were launched from Gaza into Israel. This was following attacks by Israeli warplanes who carried out airstrikes in the Gaza Strip on Friday and Saturday, targeting the Islamic Jihad organization and over the course of that operation, killing two senior leaders of the group. The rockets are mainly focused on Israel's south, but on Saturday, sirens went off in Tel Aviv and rockets fell as north as the coast of Netanya and as far east as the Jerusalem hills. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, 29 Palestinians have been killed during the operation, including six children. We're recording here on Sunday afternoon as the missiles keep falling, the sirens keep wailing, and Amir Tibon uh, is a resident of, uh, of the area that's being hardest hit by the missiles. He is a refugee of sorts, uh, <laughs> spending his time up here in, uh, in Tel Aviv uh, where his small children don't have to endure hours in the shelter. Amir, how's it going? Surviving. It was an interesting weekend, but... Um We're going to talk uh, soon to Amos Ar-El, our national security and military analyst, and there's one question I'm dying to ask him, which is, when is this going to end and we can go back home? Um, how was your weekend, Elison? Um, it was glued to, uh, to the television, uh, watching what was going on in the South, wondering how Amir is doing and his family. <laughs> um, but, uh, but also, you know, not knowing whether this is going to be a matter of a few days or a few weeks and uh, how it's going to affect our elections that are coming up in November. How can it be that we are again going to an election and again there is a war in Gaza and it looks like we're stuck in this endless loop Right. Wash, rinse, and repeat. The only thing that changes are the creative names for these different operations, right? This is Breaking Dawn. We had the discussion on Friday on the Haaretz News Desk on how to translate it, because in Hebrew, Alot HaShachar, and at first I think we called it the Rising Dawn, and then Stephen Silber, a veteran editor in our Style King, said it should be Breaking Dawn, and we've adopted it ever since. A name that I honestly think Prime Minister Yair Lapid invented himself. This is so in line with his kind of poetry, And riding over the years, do, do you feel the Yair Lapid energy of this? Yeah, that or his teenage kids were fans of the Twilight Vampire Saga because the name of that was also Breaking Dawn. So we're trying to be a little optimistic and smile a bit, but I have to say it's also kind of depressing. I mean, you see the pictures from Gaza, um, and you mentioned uh, the death toll over there, and we know in one incident there is this dispute. We're going to talk with Amos about it, about whether it's an Israeli strike or... Palestinian, uh, you know, Islamic Jihad rocket that landed in the wrong place. Um, but it makes you feel so hopeless to, to see this and realize that it's happening again and again and there is no real end in sight. Maybe for this specific conflict that we're having in the past few days there is, but not in the long run. Well, hopefully uh, Amos will uh, shed some light on the subject and give us a little bit of that hope. So let's talk to him. Here to explain and discuss what's happening and where everything is heading with Amir and I is Haaretz's military and defense analyst, Amos Harel. Hi, Amos. Hi, Alison and Amir. For those who are just tuning into the headlines, hearing of the exchange of fire, missiles falling, airstrikes happening, the outbreak of hostilities might seem kind of sudden, but for Israelis, there was quite 
a long buildup to all of this that began almost a week ago. Can you talk us through the events that began on August 2nd and how it led to what's happening now? Yes, well, I think the most important thing to remember here is that this confrontation for the time being is between Israel and Islamic Jihad, which is the smaller organization in Gaza, even more militant than Hamas. But until now, for the time being, Hamas is not really involved in any kind of fighting with Israel. So going back to last week, last Monday night, Israel arrested a top uh, militant from uh, Islamic Jihad in Jenin, which is a city in the northern West Bank. Uh, this guy is rather old. Uh, when you think of uh, terrorists, he's, uh, I think, 62. He's a sheikh, he's a, a, a religious leader as well. But not as old as Ayman al-Zawahiri, who the Americans killed last week as well. That's right. And uh, the, there were some attempts to uh, um, compare between the two of them. But anyway, Sheikh Bassam Saadi um, is familiar with Israeli jails. According to the Shin Bet's announcement, he was already... This was the seventh time he was arrested. He spent some years uh, in Israeli jails during the Second Intifada. I assume that he's uh, somebody who's behind the scenes. I don't think that he's uh, specifically directly involved in uh, sending gunmen to shootouts with the the Israeli army, but he does um, have an involvement in uh, supplying uh, money and perhaps weapons to these uh, networks. This is at least what the Israelis are claiming. Uh, anyway, when he was arrested, there were a couple of videos um, on Palestinian social media that, that uh, saw um, Israeli troops um, handling him uh, quite roughly. There was also a, a dog on the site when this happened, and there were rumors that he died uh, while uh, being apprehended. This, of course, wasn't true. Israel later on um, uh, published uh, photos to, to show that he was actually healthy and okay. But this was enough for Islamic Jihad in Gaza to start planning for some kind of retaliation. They announced that they would do something against the Israelis. And according to Israeli military intelligence, there were in fact uh, preparations for an attack, an attack along the border, either against a, a, a military convoy or a, against civilians who are driving their cars there. Uh, you're quite familiar with the terrain, uh, Amir, you know that it's uh, quite easy to launch an anti-tank uh, missile, a weapon from the Gaza Strip towards uh, the Israeli communities uh, across the border. And for this reason, uh, ever since uh, Tuesday morning, uh, the Israeli army either asked or ordered uh, residents of those communities to either stay at home or get out of the uh, area completely because they were uh, afraid of such an attack. Amir, as a resident of, uh, of the Gaza border area, how did you feel that on the ground? Was it immediate? Was it gradual? It was very strange. And of course, the first person I texted was Amos asking him, what is going <laughs> on? Why aren't they letting us drive or, you know, go to work or do anything? Um, but we've had all kinds of uh, alerts before in the area of Israel where I live. But I don't remember a situation like this where for three days, all the major roads were closed except for a specific, you know, time frame at night where you were allowed to go out if you had to go to the pharmacy or something. Um, a bit like a siege. Um, and Amos, the, the, the reason that it happened is what you just explained, but do you think the next step, which was Israel attacking the leadership of Islamic Jihad in Gaza on Friday, was pre-planned, or was it more of a response to this very strange situation where 
Israeli communities of thousands of people are living under siege because of a threat from Islamic Jihad? I'll give you a complicated answer. I think it was both. Uh, they have uh, pre-prepared uh, plans for such occasions. On the other hand, they were quite surprised by what evolved because uh, as I spoke to some of the uh, senior officers on the uh, Southern Command on uh, Tuesday evening, the general assumption was that the uh, Egyptian mediators would solve this rather quickly and that by Wednesday or Thursday, the whole situation would be over. Uh, they were surprised by uh, Islamic Jihad's reaction and apparently um, leaders of Islamic Jihad, some of them are staying at uh, Tehran right now, visiting Iran, uh, decided that they should continue their preparations to, uh, to attack. And this is uh, why on Friday, the Lapid government decided on a, um, a preemptive strike uh, in Gaza, if you'd like. Uh, and we have to mention the fact that they were um, accepting quite a lot of uh, criticism, both the army and the government, for being um, uh, too slow to uh, respond, for being, um, um, you know, not, not being proactive enough, for accepting this situation in which a small organization can actually decide on, on a sort of a siege over Israeli communities uh, across the border and so on. I think that they were more or less with the back against the wall at this time, and this is why they decided to act. Um, strangely enough, it, apparently the Islamic Jihad uh, military uh, leaders in the Gaza Strip were not behaving as if they were expecting something like that. That, and this is why this is the reason why Israel was quite successful at its uh, attack. That was Friday afternoon, about uh, four fifteen. Uh, there were a couple of strikes. Some of them um, uh, were aimed at um, senior military leaders of the Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Two of those uh, senior leaders actually died at an Israeli airstrike. Uh, there were other strikes uh, that hit uh, some of those um, cells that were prepare preparing this um, um, anti-tank missile attack that I mentioned. And um, gradually, by, by late uh, Friday, uh, there were, I think there were more than 10 casualties on the Palestinian side, among them uh, a five-year-old girl. And uh, finally, Islamic Jihad uh, decided to react by launching hundreds of rockets. As we speak on Sunday at noon, there were more than 600 rockets being launched um, to Israel, most of them at the um, immediate uh, surroundings of the Gaza Strip. But some rockets were launched towards Tel Aviv, towards the Ben-Gurion airport, and even towards Jerusalem. Until now, Israel hasn't faced any severe casualties. There were a couple of people who were um, uh, wounded, uh, but not severely, mostly from uh, Chapnel. Uh, either than that, apparently the Iron Dome uh, batteries are doing quite a good job. And according to the army, uh, their success rate is somewhere around 95% interception, which is quite amazing. And there was also an incident in the Jebalia area uh, near Gaza City where four Palestinian children were killed. And the Palestinians uh, said it was as a result of an Israeli strike. And then the Israeli military put out a video showing that in that area there was a rocket launched by Islamic Jihad that fell. Basically, instead of going toward Israel, it fell onto a Palestinian neighborhood. And the military says this was the, the reason for those tragic deaths. So we're looking at um, a conflict that's been going on now for almost 48 hours as we speak. Amos, how long do you think it's going to last? 
it would probably last a couple of more days. Uh, we already hear, uh, as we speak, of uh, Egyptian attempts to, uh, to uh, proclaim some kind of a humanitarian uh, ceasefire. This is usually the way things um, begin to end. Um, the, the most important issue is Hamas involvement. As long as Hamas can be kept out of this direct military conflict, then Islamic Jihad would find it very, very hard to continue fighting against Israel on its own. So if Israel succeeds in those pinpoint operations without killing too many civilians and without getting Hamas involved, and on the other hand, if there are no, not too many casualties on our side, which may cause some political pressure on the government to continue, then I think anybody in their right minds would say, okay, it's time to, to settle this. It's time to, to wrap it up. And, and you know there will be more operations and more periods of escalation. But Israel actually got out of this situation and um, you know, achieved everything that it could achieve and stopped uh, while, uh, while it was ahead. Uh, the only problem is whether Islamic Jihad will be willing to play along uh, what its uh, um, uh, patrons in uh, in Tehran are going to say about that. But I'm, I, I think there is a slight reason for a certain optimism saying that within a few days, uh, you know, you can get back to your kibbutz and things would resume as normally as they can. Uh, in in this uh, uh, part of the world, uh, but you know uh, this is war, not exactly a full scale war, of course. But in, in times of war, it's very very hard to make any kind of assumptions about the near future. One thought that came to my mind as I was listening to Amos is that Islamic Jihad so far has really been humiliated in this entire uh, round. Uh, first the arrest in Jenin and then the assassinations of their leaders in Gaza, and there was another one on Saturday who was killed. So perhaps one of the problems for them is it's difficult to stop now when they really don't seem to have anything that they can show um, in terms of retaliation. They, it's true that they shot a lot of rockets and missiles at Israel, but um, we are glad that most of them were either intercepted or fell in places without any population. What are they going to be able to tell their supporters and, like you said, the, the people who fund them in, in Tehran about reaching a ceasefire now? I, I think it's probably um, going to be hard for them to, to stop immediately. I think we will see more threats. And even if they agree to a final ceasefire, they may say that, you know, that this is an, some kind of an indirect uh, uh, agreement, that they're not part of any kind of ceasefire, that they maintain the right uh, to act whenever they need to, and so on. But on the other hand, I think that the fact that the two of their uh, senior commanders, both their, their um, highest commander in the northern part of the Strip, and lately, um, Saturday evening, uh, the, the commander of the southern part of the Strip uh, was killed as well. I think this causes them a lot of problems regarding command and control. Uh, as we see, they're having a hard time um, coordinating those barrages of uh, rockets. They're um, not really successful at, for the time being at um, um, uh, dealing with the Israeli uh, rockets intercepting systems and so on. It may um, lead to a decision for them for a sort of a tactical uh, break to say, okay, let's agree on a ceasefire and we'll prepare our retaliation for sometime in the future when we're more uh, organized. Right now, when you look at it from the point of view of the military planners in the IDF and, and the senior leaders of Shin Bet and so on, I think they'll tell you that for them, 
this is the right way to stop, the, the right time to stop, because again, because uh, they've achieved most of what they plan to do. And if they've deterred uh, the Islamic Jihad for the next year or so, then this um, limited kind of operation could be uh, declared as a success. Um, I have to remind you that in May 2021, we spent eight uh, days of fighting. Uh, it was called in Israel Operation Guardian of the Walls. Uh, there were eight days of fighting with Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Again, Israeli leaders, it was still Benjamin Netanyahu at that time, but also the IDF stopped brass. Uh, kept on mentioning uh, some kind of victory. It was never a, a victory. It was a sort of a miserable draw. And the, the, the proof is in the pudding a year and a half later, because the, the fact that Islamic Jihad uh, was willing to, to risk another strike means that deterrence wasn't as uh, high as we believed. So even if something like this happens again and a ceasefire is reached, this is only temporary. And in the long run, there will be excuses, there will be reasons, something going on in the West Bank or Jerusalem, something going on politically either in Israel or in the, on the Palestinian side that will lead to, to more confrontations and more rounds of violence. You've been seeing uh, representatives of the uh, Lapid government uh, on the airwaves in Israel patting themselves on the back for better managing this conflict, for better managing public communication regarding this conflict. Very subtle electioneering, considering we've got less than three months till an election, but electioneering uh, nonetheless. almost do you see this conflict being better handled and better communicated than the previous rounds that took place under Netanyahu? Look, unfortunately, it's not only the Lapid uh, government members, it's uh, some uh, senior members of the media as well, which, um, you know, uh, have appointed themselves to be cheerleaders of the new government, something they would have never risked doing uh, under Netanyahu. You see some journalists doing that, you see all kinds of uh, strategic advisors, independent strategic advisors or media advisors on TV saying the same things. I, I'm, you know, I keep my um, personal trauma is the Lebanon, the second Lebanon war of 2006. And I remember the first few days under Ehud Olmert, again, uh, sort of a central left uh, figure at that time. And I remember the uh, media heaping praise on him for, uh, you know, for such eloquent uh, uh, speeches at the Knesset. Some people even compared him to, uh, to Churchill and his decision making and so on. And we all remember how this ended, uh, Lebanon too. Um, you know, this is a limited scale of operation uh, with fighting against terrorist organizations which are uh, hiding behind civilian population and launching their rockets at our civilian population. It's very hard to win anything and it's very easy for things to go wrong quite quickly. The law of unintended consequences always uh, works under these circumstances. So I prefer not to declare victory. I think that Lapid for the time being has shown uh, more restraint uh, than Netanyahu. I think the PR work, uh, at least on the domestic arena, uh, um, has done uh, quite well. And it turns out that both the IDF and, and Shin Bet have prepared themselves uh, quite um, impressively uh, towards the confrontation. Other than that, we haven't won anything. This isn't going away anytime soon. The problem of Gaza remains. The, our problems with the Palestinians uh, remains. So I prefer not to be part of those uh, cheerleaders and not to, you know, not to praise the uh, government too much, especially since we're in the middle of uh, things and nothing has been decided yet. Amos, one last question. Um, in last year's war, which Ellison mentioned, one of the more frightening features was that it was not only fighting between Israel and Hamas uh, in Gaza, 
but we also saw widespread violence here in Israel, in cities all over the country, Jewish and Arab citizens trying to kill each other, really, and uh, widespread uh, riots and things that we have not seen before. So far, that has not happened in the 48 hours since this conflict began. How concerned are you about that kind of scenario uh, moving forward? Look, the, the main thing that has changed, uh, apart from the fact that Hamas, as I said, is not involved, is that Jerusalem is not the center of things. If you remember last year, things began escalating after Passover in uh, Jerusalem. It was Hamas identifying with the struggle of the Palestinians against uh, Israeli occupation and the Temple Mount and, and so on. And it was Hamas's decision to launch rockets from Gaza, solidarity, Uh, to those uh, who were fighting Israel um, around Al-Aqsa that led to the uh, quite uh, severe Israeli reaction uh, in Gaza. This is not the same right now because at, at this time, Jerusalem is not mentioned as, as the center of things. Although it's Tisha B'Av today, and although Jews went um, uh, around Al-Aqsa, Itamar Ben-Gvir, as usual, the Knesset member uh, was attempting to, to, to start a fire uh, there, Uh, we'll probably see more attempts of extremists on both sides trying to put uh, Jerusalem in the middle of this. As long as Jerusalem is not part of the equation, I think there's a better chance of things staying um, rather restrained um, inside uh, the 67 borders with the um, um, Arab cities and Arab citizens of uh, Israel. I think that a lot of people on both sides of these neighborhoods in places like Ramleh and Lot And so on, I've suffered quite a lot last year and I have no intention of repeating that experience. This is, of course, a good thing. Um, as long as this ends soon, then there's less of a chance of things evaporating in all those uh, so-called mixed towns like Kamla and Lod. If um, violence continues, and um, when violence continues, there will be more casualties among Palestinian civilians, uh, women, children, old people, and so on. It's... It's, unfortunately, this is part of such a war. If this happens and there are more horrific pictures of casualties in Gaza, then, of course, there's more of a chance of things uh, escalating at home, too. Uh, my hope still is that uh, we'll reach a ceasefire within the next few days and we can avoid uh, those uh, scenarios. Amos Harel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Amir, it's clear where Amos stands. His uh, analysis in Haaretz was headlined, Israel should end Gaza operation now if it can. And that's pretty much what he said to us uh, here on the podcast. You live in the area. How do your friends, neighbors, the Gaza border residents feel about this? Would they like to see it end soon and quickly? Or would they prefer to pay the price and the danger of a longer operation, hoping that some sort of wider operation could uh, prevent this from uh, getting bad in the long term? It's a great question, Alison. So first of all, I, I, I've spent the last three days here in Tel Aviv with relatives like many young families from the bombarded area. of the uh, Gaza envelope, as we call it. Um, we decided to move a little north to catch some distance from the rockets. And I think most people who are away from home, like us right now, would definitely like this to end soon so we can go back home. And that's even more true for people who are still in 
the area of the Gaza border, and their life is basically right now uh, the, you know, the amount of time you have between one uh, siren and the other. Here in central Israel, we are recording this at the Haaretz Studio in Tel Aviv, there have been several uh, missile uh, uh, alerts. Um, you can really count them on, on one hand. And in most cases, it's just been intercepted by Iron Dome and life goes on. People go to restaurants, they go to the beach, which is great. That's how it should be. Um, but in the Gaza border area, it's not like that. And of course, in Gaza, it's even worse because in Gaza, a lot of people don't have shelters to hide in at all. And people, I think, are very scared. Um, and I think one thing that unites most of the people on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side of that border is the hope that this would end soon, that we can go back to our life. And there is even a larger hope, which I'm, you know, it's not realistic, unfortunately, to talk about today, but we should, which is the hope that after this, things could even get better somehow, and we could have economic investment in Gaza and go back to giving uh, Palestinians in Gaza work permits in Israel so they can work and provide for their families and think about larger solutions to improve life. Because in the long run, I think everyone knows that if the situation in Gaza remains as miserable as it is today, we on the other side of the border are also not going to have the life that we want to have. Did you see the picture that came out today of Prime Minister Lapid briefing opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu about the operation? Yeah, people can't stop talking about it because it's a big deal. The whole time that Naftali Bennett was prime minister, uh, Netanyahu refused to sit down with him and get a security briefing because it would make him look too much like a real prime minister. And until now, he's refused to do the same with uh, Lapid. And it's this conflict in Gaza that has somehow changed the equation and said, like, okay, I'll sit down and be photographed with you being briefed. What do you think that means? I saw Bibi putting out some kind of an explanation that he offered advice based on his past experience, <laughs> which is nice. But I really think, politically speaking, it's a victory for Lapid, this image. He's the one who's the prime minister. He's the one that's giving the briefing. And Netanyahu is there to get an update on how Lapid is running the show. So apparently Lapid's office is distributing a photo of them both looking serious, talking business, and Netanyahu's office uh, is distributing a photo of them smiling, like posing for the cameras, like, oh, this is a photo op. So it's getting down to that kind of granular detail and analyzing uh, what this meeting means. Even with the, the smiles, I think Netanyahu would have preferred to avoid this picture because, like you said, the legitimacy of someone else being prime minister in Israel is at the heart of the BB, you know, the Bibisti movement, as we call it, a Bibisti here in Israel, that only he can do it. And now there is a different prime minister, and connecting to what we just heard from Amos Sarel, I think it's too early to say if this operation was a success or not for him, and really we will have to judge this in the long term. Will there be long-term quiet in Gaza? Will we see any kind of progress toward a real better future, but just the very fact that Netanyahu had to accept this idea that he's going to get a security briefing from Yair Lapid that he always mocks for not having security experience is a change that we would not have seen without this operation. If, as Amos Harrell recommends, we get out of this in time for it to look like a victory, to have a victory picture, as they say, I don't see how it won't help Yair Lapid in his uh, bid to continue to be prime minister after these elections. On the one hand, maybe it helps him 
and we saw over the weekend interviews with some Israelis, including people who identified as Likud voters who were saying, we, we support Prime Minister Lapid and go all the way. But I think Lapid could also pay a price with the Arab-Israeli vote, which is extremely important in this election. And if there is a low voting percentage among the Arab-Israeli population, that helps Netanyahu and hurts Lapid because his block of uh, parties that are against Netanyahu also includes the two Arab parties. And I don't know yet how this will impact the Arab-Israeli society. I'm sure that the views over there are not as supportive of this operation as in the you know, consensus that you've seen in the Jewish society around it. Even the left-wing parties were saying originally that they give backing to the IDF. And so Lapid maybe gains a little bit with this, but could also lose on another front. How wag the dog do you feel like this whole situation is? Oh, that's a big question. Because, yeah. so, Prime Minister Yair Lapid, he's accused of being not strong enough, not experienced enough. He just happens to greenlight this preemptive strike. There's not even any rockets falling in Israel, but it's a preemptive strike. Your neighbors on the Gaza border are probably very thrilled that, you know, the rockets didn't have to fall. He tried to uh, act before that happened. Um, do you think that this is something that any Israeli prime minister would do? Or do you think that Lapid was particularly motivated to flex his muscles right now to prove a point, to show people like Netanyahu that, look, I'm a serious prime minister and I can fight these kinds of things. D- did you read our colleague Gidon Levy this morning? I'm sure he had an interesting analysis. Yeah, he basically slams Lapid and says that it would have been better with Netanyahu. Which, uh, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about this recently with friends in the United States, um, that you do have voices in the Israeli left, in the more radical parts of it, that are so hostile to this change government that Lapid created and was originally led by Bennett, and now he's the prime minister, that they actually see some advantages to Netanyahu. And what Gideon Levy writes is that he thinks Netanyahu would not have taken this step of doing a preemptive strike, of basically starting a war, is how he describes it, without any rockets being fired at Israel. Um, and he explains it as an attempt by Lapid to, just like you said now, bolster his image. I have to say, I personally don't accept the analysis offered here. I, I'm more convinced by Amos Arel's argument that Lapid waited and waited, and there were three days of this alert on the Gaza border. And when he and Defense Minister Gantz realized that there was not going to be any indication that Islamic Jihad is giving up on the uh, threat, promise, to try to kill Israelis via an anti-tank missile attack, that's when they said, all right, if they're holding us hostage for three days, and by, by the time that strike happened in Gaza, it was the fourth day already, let's act on ourselves. But I also understand the, the question marks that, that you were raising and some other uh, people are also asking. Um, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a weird situation, I have to say, the sequence of events that we, that we just heard about. By the way, what do you think about this response from the United States? We basically heard the Biden administration, even though Israel started it this time, saying, 
Israel has a right to protect itself. We give full backing to Israel. Well, that's not surprising, given the messaging of President Biden's recent uh, visit to Israel. I wasn't exactly surprised for uh, for the U.S. to do that. But, you know, again, that's for before we're hearing about some sort of massive damage, massive body count in Gaza. It all could it, change. All it would take would be one huge disaster and, uh, and, and the tune could change there. Yeah, no, it's coming from Biden. It's coming from uh, the ambassador to Israel, uh, Thomas Nides, this uh, 100% uh, backing of the action. Um, I think, I mean, I'm confused and I think a lot of uh, Israelis are taken aback by some of the, uh, some of the, what we see in the analysis that we have in Haaretz uh, from Noah Landau and Svi Bar-El, that somehow this is putting Israel and Hamas on the same side against Islamic Jihad. Hamas is kind of stepping back and saying, yeah, this is happening in Gaza and, uh, w- you know, we fully support Islamic Jihad, but they're not doing anything to help them, which would widen the conflict. And and Israel, on the other hand, is uh, saying, it uh, always verbally says that we hold Hamas responsible for everything that's happening in Gaza. On the other hand, we're not hitting any Hamas targets. We're only hitting Islamic Jihad targets. So in a way, this seems like a mini version of what's happened in the Middle East, where these Sunni Arab states, which were our enemies, we found a common enemy in Iran, so we're on the same side. And now we with Hamas have a common enemy in Islamic Jihad, so we won't admit it. There's no Abraham Accords happening between Hamas and Israel. But yet, weirdly, subtly, we seem to be on the same side. Oh, I think the Abraham Accords metaphor may be a step too far, <laughs> but very. I agree with the premises that basically, yeah, Hamas and Israel right now are talking to one another and are giving messages, let's not harm one another. And I don't think Hamas is too sad to see the Islamic Jihad lose some of its best field commanders and some of its influence in Gaza, because at the end of the day, it is competition. It is... Uh, an ally and rival organization for Hamas and supported fully by Iran, whereas Hamas has more of an independent uh, standing in Palestinian politics. And I think, like uh, Noah uh, that you mentioned wrote today, there is a denial of this in the Israeli uh, public discourse. There is a denial of it. And by the way, it didn't start under Prime Minister Lapid. This is actually something that we also saw under Netanyahu. There were times when Israel targeted Islamic Jihad and there was a clear messaging that Hamas is not involved in the fighting. And I think the real question is, at, at what point in time will Israel and Hamas admit that they are actually talking to one another and that they actually have reached understandings on these tactical issues and maybe take it a step further? You know, we had last year on our podcast Ephraim Alevi former Mossad chief. Right. And he said Israel needs to talk to Hamas because they are the strong party in the Palestinian arena and it will not be possible to reach any kind of real agreement without them. And yet any politician in Israel who would come and say that out loud right now, I think would be hammered politically and in the press. So it seems like we're in denial of what's really happening. Because we've had so many years of rhetoric. We have to weaken Hamas. We have to destroy Hamas. We have to pound it to bits and uh, and and send them running from the Gaza Strip. So now the idea that they're the responsible adult in the room and the stronger we make them, the more they'll behave like a government and the less like a terrorist group. And uh, it's okay to line up with them against Islamic Jihad. It's a very alien concept for Israelis to uh, to digest right now. But you know, Elison, there's another interpretation. So I, I I saw a joke that someone tweeted the other day that Hamas is not involved in this conflict with Islamic Jihad because Netanyahu, as he promised in 2009, had destroyed Hamas. It's gone. 2009, (laughs) during an election, and back then also a war in Gaza, 
um, Ehud Olmert was prime minister. Netanyahu went to Ashkelon, a big city in southern Israel, and you know, there was a video taken in the entrance to the city where he says, we will destroy Hamas, we will bring down the Hamas regime. And then 12 years in power, Hamas only got stronger and stronger. So um, now we are at a point where actually we are relying on them You, you actually hear this from the Israeli security experts who go on the studios now and they talk endlessly. We are counting on Hamas to tell the Islamic Jihad to stop the fire. It's crazy. Uh, the new Middle East. Black is white and white is black. Up is down and down is up. And as we wrap up this podcast, we have no idea when we record next week whether this is going to seem like ancient history and we'll have completely moved on back to the elections or another issue or if we're going to be even more mired in some even more serious news about what's happening in Gaza. Let's hope we have a different subject for next week. Elison, thank you very much. Thanks, Amir. And thanks to Avri Rosenzvi and Shani Aviram. For producing and editing this episode our political podcast election overdose will be back again this weekend and until our next meeting which is hopefully in more peaceful times shalom from tel aviv